Yeah, just look at kids on a kindergarten playground. I have this candy. You have that candy. Want to switch? Yeah, absolutely. And people are better off. I mean, trade just, it makes you better off. And in terms of production, it rewards the people who are able to produce the best use of resources. So given that we have this global society that we live in, if you don't want resources wasted, trade is a, is a great way to, to accomplish that. Hello, welcome again to the episode in the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Van Skin. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today I'm delighted to have on someone who has thought a lot about economic history, free markets, and the knowledge problem, and so much more about Hayek in particular, which we're going to talk a lot about today, which is this book, Hayek, A Life, 1899 to 1950. And it's none other than Dr. Bruce Caldwell. Bruce, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Glad to be here and look forward to our, uh, our conversation. Well, well, great. I am too. Um, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. And for the audience, let me go ahead and start by giving them your bio, and then we'll jump right into it. So Professor Caldwell's research focuses on the history of economic thought with a specific interest in the life and works of the Nobel laureate, economist, and social theorist F.A. Hayek. He is the author of Hayek's Challenge, an intellectual biography of F.A. Hayek, and since 2002 has served as the general editor of the book series, The Collected Works of F.A. Hayek. In 2022, he published Montpelier in 1947, transcripts of the founding meeting of the Montpelierin Society, as well as Hayek, A Life, 1899 to 1950, the first of a two-volume biography that he is writing with Clausinger. And in 2019 to 2020, he was a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. At Duke, he is the director of the Center for the History of Political Economy, a center whose purpose is to promote research in and teaching of the history of economic thought. He earned his doctorate at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So with all that said, why do you do what you do every day? I'm a professor at Duke University. I'm an historian of economic thought. And the two things that I've, I've been doing uh, most since I've been at Duke, I, I originally started at uh, UNC Greensboro. That's where I, I worked for a few decades. I came to Duke in 2008 to found and direct the Center for the History of Political Economy. With that hat, we have a number of programs at the, at the center that is trying to promote history of thought. So we bring in young scholars who are interested in the history of economics, but we try to give them some training in how to write papers on the history of economics. We have a great archives at Duke, uh, Economist Papers Archive, that many of them come here to work in. And we, uh, we run summer programming that tries to help people set up a course in the history of economic thought. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, is my, my own research, which has principally been on in the past uh, few decades on Friedrich Hayek. The biography is 1899 to 1950 is one half of the guy's life. So there's another volume two that's that's occupying me right now. It's an attempt to both talk about the person, but also to talk about his ideas and to put him in the context of his of his times. Uh, who are the people he's agreeing with? Who are the people he's disagreeing with? What are their arguments? How did how did what he wrote, the stuff that's in the collected works, how did that come about? That's really kind of the question that that I see the uh, the biography is trying to answer intellectually, and also who was this person who who wrote all this stuff? So that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot to talk about with Hayek, which I want to get into that here soon. What are some of the reasons why you wanted to get into economic history? You know, a lot of the graduate programs nowadays have dropped the history of economics. I got my PhD in economics at Texas Tech University. They still had history of economics at that time, but a lot of the programs are dropping it, I think, unfortunately. So what got you interested in going into that direction, given maybe how some people are, are dropping it from their programs? 
Right. So my awareness of the fact that these things are being dropped from programs is is one reason why I started the, the principal reason why I started the center here at Duke. I studied uh, a lot of history and philosophy as well as economics when I was an undergraduate. I got to grad school and it was much more technical, but it didn't seem to provide actually that many more insights, <laughs> frankly, than a good undergraduate education can produce. So one of the questions that I had in my mind when I was in grad school is why is our graduate training so different from the stuff that I got as an undergraduate. And this got me interested in a field called economic methodology, which tries to answer the question, what does it mean to do science or do economics scientifically? And in studying that, um, I came to look at uh, people whose ideas about how to do economics were slightly different from that of the mainstream. And that's basically what brought me to Hayek. So it was not a political calling to Hayek that brought me to him. It was it was uh, interest in the methodology of economics, basically, and his particular methodological viewpoint. Indeed, the, the book that I wrote uh, called Hayek's Challenge, the original subtitle for that was to have been F.A. Hayek and the Limits of Social Science, because I think a lot of his message methodologically is that we can do much less with social science than we'd like to be able to do. And I, th I think that's a, a very significant insight. Yeah. yeah um, anyway, that's that's yeah. how I got, got to Hayek. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's great. And I, I hope that many programs and those who are listening will begin to make sure, for, for one, don't drop history of economics, but also add it back in because a lot of academics and others listen you know, to the podcast. I, I found it very insightful because one of the things about history is if we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. Too often we're repeating a lot of the mistakes that have been made in the past that Hayek and many others have, have, have told us about. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we can really get back into that. So I appreciate all the work that you're doing there at Duke University and others. Godspeed, and I, Vance. Godspeed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So let's jump right in with Hayek. You talked a little bit about why you studied Hayek and everything else. And, and with the book, it has a great breakdown. Like you said, the first half of his life, 1899 to 1950. Let, let's talk about the, uh, some of the early life of, of Hayek. Um, what are some of the highlights that you, that you like to make? Um, this is a person who's born in 1899 in Vienna. This was a, a time of particular intellectual ferment and also creativity in lots of different fields, psychology, art, politics, uh, the, the Zionism really got its start with Theodor Herzl uh, in, in Vienna, all sorts of political movements, some of them savory, some of them very unsavory, the Austrian School of Economics. I mean, there's just lots of things that was going on. So he was he was at the lower end of the upper middle class, I would say. His father was a medical doctor, um, but he, he chose to work for the city of Vienna so that he could have regular hours. And he spent all of the rest of his time working on his own herbarium. Uh, yeah, he was someone who collected plants. And as, as Hayek described his father, he's kind of a, a plant uh, geographer trying to figure out w which specific species might might be available in various places. And he was he was kind of a lackluster student, not because he wasn't a brilliant kid. All of his classmates saw him as the smartest kid in the class, but he's just lazy. He, he found the Austrian educational system to be uh, repressive. He had to move from one school to another because his handwriting was not up to the up to the standards of the particular master. So it was, it was a very kind of bizarre in, in, intellectual journey that he had. And I think most of his his education, in, in a sense, really was through his family. His father would t take him and his two brothers and his mom out to uh, to the countryside on the weekends and uh, in, in, the, in the summertime, and they would explore and 
you know, learn about natural sciences and, 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 and things like that. He fought in, in World War I on the Italian front. Uh, most Americans think of uh, All Quiet on the Western front, but, you know, there, the, there's lots of different fronts in World War I, and, and the Italian-Austrian uh, front was a, was a particularly significant one. I mean, it's something like a million people uh, were killed. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is you know, trench warfare once again. Yeah. Um, and, and he had, he had a couple of narrow escapes that we talked about in the book that were, that were fun. After the war, he entered University of Vienna, and that's where he started to really explore lots of different sets of ideas. His initial interest was actually in psychology and also philosophy, mm. but uh, he ended up deciding to train, uh, get the training that was basically the law school sort of training with a specialization in economics. There was no economics as a separate dif discipline at that time. It was something that you studied as one of the tracks in a, in a law education. Although he encountered Mises, Ludwig von Mises, uh, when he was at university, and he apparently took a seminar from him, he was much more in Important for Hayek after he finished his first degree and then started working at a government uh, agency that Mises was a director of. And that's where they that's where they first uh, really got to know each other. That's a little bit about his background. Interesting. Fascinating. Given his background in, in Vienna and, and growing up there and everything else, did he happen to, you know, once be more of a, a socialist or Marxist and then converted to more of a capitalist later on? Or, or was there some of this struggle that we've heard from some from some other economists like Thomas Sowell and, and even Friedman, uh, where they kind of switched some of their mindset or was he always more on the free market side? Yeah, so I think he was always a liberal in the sense of taking people, you know, dignified. Uh, each person has has his own dignity. He was open to debate and discussion. Uh, we can see this in in a and a little discussion group that he and a friend set up uh, at university called the Geistreis, where they would people would present papers and they would openly debate them. So I think he was always, uh, you know, like freedom of expression and things like that that are being so hotly contested on, on university campus today. He was he was fully that way. In terms of his economics, he was probably, uh, you know, he, he self-described as saying that he was a, a bit of a socialist when he was at, at university, maybe in, in, compared it to Fabian socialism of the sort that he would encounter when he moved to England in the 30s. It is ide sets of ideas that a lot of university students might just have and, and who, who feel bad about poor people and want the society to be better. And it wasn't until really that he started studying economics, which is often often true for, for people, uh, that he started to recognize that some of the solutions that were being offered perhaps were worse than the, than the problems they were trying to solve. Mises was obviously uh, actually quite important in that because Mises wrote an article that then became a book uh, on socialism and uh, Hayek said that that really, not right away, but but started him on the road to weaning him off and any enthusiasm for socialist ideas. Interesting. It's it's always fascinating to understand more about how these folks were, grew up and their their thought process that may have evolved over time, um, given the people they meet, given the things that they learn. I know my own, I, I've done that. You probably have as well. Um, yes, and oftentimes we, we, we learn from our failures. Uh, I think that's something that Mike Munger and I talked quite a bit about is how you have these failures that happen that you've got to overcome. And then, and then you learn from those experiences. Um, and so when we're thinking about you know, Hayek and the Hayekian view and kind of the background that that happened there. And overall, Hayek's view is, I think, quite unique 
compared to a lot of other economists that are out there. But from your perspective and doing all the study and, and research on Hayek, how do you explain what his view is of the economy? I see him as making both a unique contribution, but also being in a stream of thought that reaches back to Adam Smith. Pete Betke, who I know you've had on the program, makes the distinction between mainstream economics, which is whatever you might be studying in school at any given point in time in the 50s and the 70s today, and then mainline economics, which he sees as a tradition that I that describes what I call in my uh, book, basic econ- uh, Hayek's challenge, basic economic reasoning, the kind of stuff that you, you get as an undergraduate that is just true. <laughs> I mean, I don't know other, yeah. any other way to say it. it. It just really helps to be able to look at the world and see, yeah, that this kind of uh, intervention is going to have a really bad effect. It sounds great, but every time it's been tried, it's it's ended up in with these unintended consequences that have been uh, not what what people hoped for, and indeed are quite the opposite of what people hope for. So I think it's it, he is part of a tradition, and we, we it, there are people alive today who are c- continuing in that tradition. You think of the public choice tradition that Mike Munger is in. Uh, you think of the Austrian tradition re- as represented by someone like a Pete Betke or Deirdre McCloskey's uh, defense of liberalism in, in her various books and others all said Hayek was an important figure in their growing as an economist. And I think that he is he is part of that that group of people reaching back through time that are in that tradition. His particular uh, exposition about how a market economy is something that uh, allows coordination in a world of dispersed information or dispersed knowledge is is an incredibly important insight. It is articulating in terms that an economist who is trained in the 20th century would be able to understand uh, in a way. But so he's using language that would uh, that would that would be able to get across the message of the power of a, of of markets for generating great wealth and doing it in a in a setting if you've got the institutional setting right of individual liberty. And that's a very, very compelling combination of things. And indeed, part of what his his <laughs> his mission through life seemed to be is trying to explain to people not only that, but trying to figure out why people hate markets so much, uh, because they invariably do. And so, and they intervene in ways often trying to make things better that end up uh, causing them to to not be better. So that was that was it. That was the sort of scenario that he was facing. And I, you know, the 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 longer I've been studying Hayek and also just you know engaging in t- contemporary debates, I mean, liberalism seems to be one of these ideas that is is always under attack, basically. Yet, uh, you know, the insights that that one might have about uh, about how the world works that that are provided through through the ideas of Hayek and others is are, are quite quite important I think yeah. I, I agree with you and I think that he brought up so many um, insights that still stick with us today he's definitely one of my favorite economists and that was it was unique in the way that he talked about it to your point on the you know the knowledge problem I think always comes to mind and it's something when I was teaching or now when I'm doing interviews or something else I and, and working with public policy folks across the country it's something I bring up often is is this this view of the knowledge problem I love to hear you explain the knowledge problem maybe some insights that you learned from him as you were reading through all of his works. Going back in time to the 1930s, when he started to come up with the ideas that are are 
captured by the phrase, the knowledge problem. Uh, there was great enthusiasm for central planning. It was the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, you had alternative systems that to most people who were who were regular people seemed to be horrible, like communism or uh, various forms of fascism or Nazi socialism on the continent that were uh, that were you know, competing systems. <laughs> Here's the way to go. And a lot of people, as a result, were were socialists, and socialism means central ownership of the means of production, uh, no private firms, and uh, so the idea is that there's going to be a setup that that involves the government uh, taking over uh, the means of production, and organizing production, and von Mises back in the twenties in his essay that was so influential on Hayek had said, well, you know, if, if you if you don't have prices for factors of production, if the, if the government owns everything, how do you figure out what rational decision making would be? Because prices reveal relative scarcities of, of, of factors of production. How do you decide which ways to produce goods in a way that doesn't waste resources? So that was a fundamental objection that, that Hayek stuck to and was trying to bring that to the attention of his British. So he moved from Vienna to the London School of Economics in the early 30s, and that's where he taught until he moved to America in 1950. So uh, he was he was debating with, with people on the faculty about how a socialist setup would actually work. And he had uh, a number of different people who were on the faculty and, and also just in general so, who were arguing for socialism that said, well, wait a second. Let's let's grant your idea that a perfectly competitive economic system has efficiency characteristics that are that we would like to to follow. Why don't we just, as socialist managers, direct uh, the managers of these firms and industries to do things that would be theoretically what we would describe as characteristics of efficiency? So. Tell tell managers to price at marginal cost. Tell uh, tell managers of socialist firms to produce so that all economies of scale are exploited. Yeah, you can draw diagrams where you can find intersections of of all these curves that represent an efficient outcome. And Hayek's question then was, well, wait a second. You know, what are we assuming here? What are we assuming that people know? I mean, your socialist managers don't have these diagrams sitting in, in their offices to, to try to figure these things out. And he says, what's the world actually look like? The world actually looks like this. People have different bits of knowledge. No one has full knowledge. You have the man on the spot has was the phrase he used, has knowledge of specific knowledge of time and place. And the real question is, in a world like that, where people have only little bits of knowledge, so knowledge is dispersed, and some of the stuff they think is wrong, on top of it, yeah, you know, how do these errors get corrected? The real question is, how does any kind of coordination, social coordination or co coordination of, of the economy occur? And yeah, you know, this is an insight that yeah, you know, if you go back to Bastiat, Paris gets fed, yeah, you know, these sorts of phrases. This is something that other people have had and, and expressed in different ways that, you know, we have not just once a day, but every day, day in and day out, everyone in Paris who has can afford it <laughs> gets fed. And no one is in charge of feeding Paris. You've got millions of people doing jobs that feed into that. Okay. All that is coordinated with no one directing it. So that's the kind of contrast that Hayek 
was trying to draw. He's trying to say, what is the system that allows uh, this to to kind of coordination to occur when we know that people don't have all this knowledge centralized in one place? And and his answer is, well, you know, it, there's a certain set of of institutional things that that are prerequisites. You need. He he talked about several property, which would be you know people talk about a competitive economic system. That means that there's lots of competitors. So there's dispersed ownership of property. So private property that is that is several property or dispersed, and then a market system where people enter into the market and there's yeah you know, there's there's legal protections about. Uh, you know, protection of property, protection of people, prosecution of fraud. You can't make contracts that are that are in any of a number of different ways, uh, not representing what the actual uh, contracts uh, you know, that you're contracting for. As long as you have legal remedies for all of that, essentially a justice system that's in place and functioning, then um, individuals uh, pursuing their own interests end up, just as Adam Smith said, like an invisible hand, producing a huge amount of stuff because division of labor gets uh, more widely distributed, the more exchange there is. And that allows, as as Smith showed, an enormous increase in, in productive capacity. So he's getting, he's he's explaining using 20th century economic kind of jargon, insights that, as I said, are part of that larger tradition uh, that reaches back uh, to, to Smith. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And it all goes into prices, how these yep. prices are signals of how these voluntary exchanges that are taking place and what sh who should produce and who should not produce and who should mm -hmm. consume and not consume or work and not work. I mean, all these things are information that can't be made. I mean, you could try from a coordinated group of politicians or managers, as you said, and try to orchestrate what's happening in the economy, but that doesn't end up very well. We've seen that, right. you know, throughout history where prices, and you know, free market capitalism really allows for this distribution to be made made better and and more efficient in the in the long run, um, and helping everyone else be better off in the process. And it's something that I've really um, you studied quite a bit. You brought up a lot of key economists that I appreciate as well, which is Douglas North on the institutional side of economics, and James Buchanan on public choice, and um, Bonamesis and Hayek and others, and and me and Friedman too. You know, on the Chicago Absolutely. side, yep. it's kind of a yep. combination of those that I think. Hayek is able to embody in, in so many ways. And maybe he might be a little bit too dense with some of his wording compared to a Friedman. But I think that anyone can can read it and learn from his his work, The Fatal Conceit, and some others that are out there. I, but I wonder, and we were talking about this a little bit before we went on and started recording, but what are some of your favorite books or writings that he sure. wrote that you would really recommend you know, to folks yeah. to be like, read this first? <laughs> yeah. So particularly if you've had it, some training in economics, the use of knowledge in society is where he, he basically articulates that vision of how a market system is able to communicate um, relative scarcities automatically uh, through the workings of the price system. And, and one of the things he gets at there that I think is so important, something you alluded to in your comments just now, is that you're making your own individual decisions and the market system provides all these prices that help you make decisions about, but where does that information that's in those prices come from? It comes from your actions and those of millions of other people reflecting your own demands and supplies that create those prices. So the, your, your actions are determined by the prices, but your actions also determine the prices. Yeah. And what he's describing there is, is, a, is a complex system that's adaptive. It's constantly changing. It's correcting errors. Every time somebody makes a mistake is somebody else's profit opportunity. And people who jump on that 
then correct that that kind of error. And you know the contrast that kind of system has with other systems, either uh, you know a fully centralized, centrally planned system is obviously going to have real problems because it doesn't have any of that feedback. But even within a mixed system of the sorts that we that we see everywhere in Western Europe and the United States, et cetera, a lot of the interventions that are meant to achieve some sort of goal are forms of price fixing. And and this is what is hindering prices from doing their job of of reflecting relative scarcities and, and allowing people to make the right decisions. And it just mucks up the system that he's describing. And it, it's it it yeah, you know, depending on how extensive it is, it can really do some some serious damage. Uh, we saw that particularly in the 70s. But also you, you see see these things when there is an extensive regime of price fixing as occurs with rent controls or agricultural price support. You know, you have you, these are textbook examples in economics of, of policies that are well intended or well intentioned that, that just really hurt often the people that they're aimed at helping. But as society as a whole, it's just a waste of resources to achieve goals through those policies. So that yeah. use of knowledge in society is a kind of a theoretical yeah explanation of that. Uh, the Meaning of Competition is another hmm. one that I think is a nice article that talks about actual competition as rivalry rather than the perfect competition of the of the textbooks. What, yeah. One of the, the, the nice kind of pithy phrases that the Austrians use is that there's no, there's no consumer choice in consumer choice theory, and there's no competition in, in the theory of perfect competition, that these models that are attempt, uh, attempting to model things that have to do with economics are often misleading about the market process in which in which real people and, and firms actually interact. Um, for those who are more politically inclined, individualism true and false is a very nice uh, piece. Also, the intellectuals and socialism is, is kind of his manifesto for why we need to try to uh, promote a liberal order and why so many intellectuals, in, in fact, uh, uh, are not fans of liberalism, um, and it's it's uh, these are these are marvelous pieces. And if for one that is kind of provocative, would be the depending on the listener is the epilogue uh, to the Constitution of Liberty, which says why I am not a conservative. Yeah. And what he what he tries to do there is to say, well, you know, we we often have this left right description of of political ideology. He says it's much better to talk about progressives uh, or socialists, uh, conservatives, and liberals as occupying three. It's, it's a triangle. It's not a left-right diagram. And he says often in, in terms of their enthusiasm for state intervention in the economy, uh, uh, conservatives and socialists uh, are, are on the same page. It's just that they want intervention for different reasons. And I think, you know, looking at the political uh, landscape of today, uh, yeah, this is this is an essay that is well worth a, a reconsideration. Yep, uh, I agree. That was one I was going to bring up if you if, if you didn't, but I'm glad that you did. And we're, we're seeing this a lot of take place today. I mean, um, a lot of the lessons that I, that I follow the mainline economics, that's kind of where I'm at on this stuff as well. And what we're seeing today is a lot of price fixing. We see minimum wages. We see rent control, as you mentioned, but a lot of other things that people have been talking about doing over the last couple of years because of inflation is up and everything else that that we, we know that that doesn't work very well or at all. <laughs> And it makes the situation worse. If you look at back what happened with Nixon or other countries, um, time and again, we've tried this and it just doesn't work. But we've also seen that, I you know that Hayek was really interested in was on um, free trade. 
And, and what we hear a lot from conservatives in particular is that we need more protectionism. We need tariffs. We need things of that nature, which are a step in the, the wrong direction from really what we need out there. But I guess like you said the politics really gets in the way because there's this fear that China or other countries will, will take us over or have some military um, um, preferences or rankings that are going to be higher than us over time. So we've got to, we've, we've got to go after them in some way. The other one is on immigration. I mean, you can kind of go through a lot of these key issues where we're allowing for politics to take the role instead of looking at the key economic insights that we've been learning for so long. I, I wonder, and kind of how we're wrapping up here, Bruce, is what are some of the implications that we should take from his work? But given the the, the issues of the day, the hot topics that we have see, that we're going on today, what should we learn from um, Frederick Hayek? So he was a, a great proponent of free trade, as people like that are within that that tradition that we take from Adam Smith through Friedman and, and Hayek. So absolutely right. And it's because, yeah, trade is is a wonderful uh, way of, yeah, just look at kids on a kindergarten playground. You know, I have this candy, you have that candy. Want to switch? Yeah, absolutely. And people are better off. I mean, trade just, it it makes you better off. And in terms of production, it it rewards the people who are able to produce Use the best use of resources. So it's, yeah, given that we have this huge either national or global society that we live in, if you don't want resources wasted, trade is a, is a great way to, to accomplish that. It also enhances competition. I mean, people worry about big corporations. The best constraint on a corporation is that it faces some sort of foreign competition. And that's precisely why so many politicians end up defending uh, protectionism, because yeah, if if you're if you can't compete, you're gonna your jobs are gonna be gone. Well, that's right. I mean, so what should we say? Let's not compete and just sit back and just yeah, rate if I protect me. But you generalize that across all the people. Everybody's protected. It's 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 a horrible outcome. Similarly for immigration, I mean, certainly this is one of the things that really distinguishes liberals from from uh, lots of others is is that you know the idea that. It, it needs to be orderly. I mean, the idea of illegal immigration, you know, people just pouring over the border and being admitted is not is not uh, something that is is uh, attractive. But but the idea of, you know, my, my mother's side of the family, they were from Central Europe. They immigrated at the turn of the previous century. And, yeah, they're hardworking people. You look at the, the, the folks who are are at our borders who are desperately using all of their resources to try to get into America to do what to work. I mean, that's, that's what they're coming here to do. They they want to have a life. And, you know, getting out of the way of that is, uh, is I think, a very, very important uh, a liberal principle that that I, it, it, it is astounding to me that this is that that, that so little has been done about this uh, this problem that has existed on our particularly on our southern border for all these years. I mean, it's it's it's, yep. it's really um, it's it's despicable in my in my view. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a humanitarian crisis that has been created by government. And then somehow we think that government can solve the problem <laughs> whenever. And it's interesting, too, because going back to the knowledge problem and, and some of our discussion here is that many people argue that these are market failures, right? Yeah, right. Whether it's immigration, whether it's trade, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, that these are market failures. But then they forget they look 
forget to see who's behind the curtain of causing these problems is government. Right. <laughs> these, these are government failures and not market failures. And I think if we had more insights from Hayek, we would better understand what's going on in, our, in the economy. And, um, and, and, and instead of allow, having a top-down, um, heavy-hand approach, we would let people, which is really what free markets are. Free markets are free people that are coordinating together and, 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 and trading with one another. And we should have more of that, not less, throughout all of the industries in our economy, um, because that's what's going to allow people to have more freedom and 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 more prosperity. And so, as as we're really wrapping up here now, why are you hopeful or or not very hopeful about you know peace and prosperity in the future, given your knowledge and insights and things that are going on today um, that you'd want to leave the audience with? Yeah, so I'm optimistic on on two counts. First of all, studying history shows that there were times when it was much worse. <laughs> there is. Putin out there, but there used to be Stalin. There used to be Hitler. Just go down the list of, of various problems. Yeah, we 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 did have inflation. They had hyperinflation in in Germany and Austria at the uh, beginning of the 1920s. So the sorts of things that people faced at, at various points in time were much worse than than they have been than what we're facing now. Uh, number one and number two, I, I have great faith in um, in just regular people. Regular people actually, they just want to get on with their lives. And they, they maybe they don't like their work, but they'll work because they want to provide for their families and uh, and enjoy uh, the benefits of a free society. And I think that that I mean, you know, those people who are getting in, who are able to get in on the border, are going to go on to have uh, have great family lives and become members of of a society that uh, that is not not obviously not always welcoming them but boy oh boy i mean this is this is this the immigrant story that that i grew up with anyway uh and and it does give me great optimism because there's people who recognize that for all of the naysayers in this in this uh, country that that get the kind of talking heads uh, kind of uh, attention the regular people out there are, I think, by and large, you know, just regular people. <laughs> and I've got a lot of confidence in regular people, I have uh, yeah. to say. Yeah. Same here. I, I agree with you. And I have optimism as well. And I'm glad that you are, are working on these issues, Bruce, and um, doing all the great work that you're doing. And thank you for being on the Let People Prosper show. And uh, God bless you and your family. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Uh, great. Again. All right, great. Well, um, for, the, for the audience, thank you all for joining us today. Please go and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you get this podcast. Um, and until next time, let people prosper.